0: Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Starting in Second Peter, starting in verse 16. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. You may be seated. Well, some strange things have been reported in North Carolina for the last year or so. Last year, there was, yes, a Bigfoot sighting around Shelby, North Carolina. The story went viral. A few weeks ago, you may or may not have heard, but aliens landed in Wilson County of North Carolina and apparently left crop circles in the process. The report of aliens and crop circles came out of a newspaper, a local rag, called the Gray Area, which was a digest of unusual happenings in the Rocky Mount, Wilson, North Carolina area. Raleigh News and Observer reporter Josh Schaefer decided to check out the situation after reading about this, so he found the original story on a website called MUFON, which is the Mutual UFO Network website. It said that crops had been uh, done in one of the fields in the form of an M, and it left people um, terrified as a result. So he took a drive to Wilson County hunting for extraterrestrials. And in the process, he spent time looking uh, along Highway 301 for crops that had the letter M imprinted in them, And his drive on 301 really revealed very little and nothing special. So he stopped at a local bar, he reported, called the Bittersweet Biker Saloon. He wanted to check things out. He thought he could get the real story there. Well, when he went in, he asked around, and sure enough, no one had heard about the crop circles. Even a few of the patrons of... The bittersweet biker saloon suggested that the wind had been up and had certainly done some damage to some of the crops in the area in recent storms. Uh, He thought he would try something else after finding nothing at the biker saloon, so he went out and started wandering in fields, complete stranger's fields, looking for evidence of landing gear. Well, as he looked and he was wandering around the field, it hit him suddenly how ridiculous this search was. And as a result, he left. And Schaefer concluded after his search for extraterrestrials, I am not looking for a UFO anymore, I quote. If it wants to find me, I'll be enjoying the pleasures of the earth. Now, I admit, opening a sermon with a UFO story seems a little odd, doesn't it? please don't assume that I believe in UFOs or that you should believe in UFOs or most of all, don't believe that the Bible even suggests there are UFOs. But don't miss the point. Some people believe in UFOs, which goes to show that sometimes people will believe anything. And because people will believe anything, almost anything, uh, they therefore will end up doing just about everything, sometimes stuff that is not so good for you. And guys, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is after here in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, where we really find first century Christians that he was talking to in distress. They were in distress over cultural pressure. And as a result, they were prone to believing anything and as a result, we're doing everything, including sin, in the midst of their pain. For one solid chapter, Peter has presented to us a way of living under the pressure of conformity. It is a costly way. He's told us that God calls us to a life where we're supposed to be partakers in the divine nature. Back earlier in chapter 1, what does that mean? That means we're supposed to reflect the glory of God in our lives and in the midst of even pressured hardship where everybody's saying, you need to do this, you reflect the beauty, the uh, kindness, the gentleness, the love. Yes, even the holiness of God in your lives. But here's the thing, when you're under pressure, when you're under pressure to conform to cultural winds, and the cost of following Jesus seems really high at points, then a big question arises in everybody's heart. Yes, even Christians like these here in the first century. Why? Why trust Peter? Why trust the way of the Bible? Why not trust what other people say? What's so special about the Bible? What's so special about what God says here in this word and even Peter says as an apostle of Christ? Now, Peter anticipates these honest questions of believers and he gives us three reasons in this text of why we should trust what the Bible says over what culture says. And the three reasons are this. Eyewitness... Promise and inspiration. Eyewitness, promise, inspiration. E-P-I, if you will. Epi, like an pen of God's truth. So, Peter, why should we trust you in the Bible and not some other religious claims that will cause less trouble and pain in our lives? Well, look at what Peter says in verse 16 of our text. He says, 4. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here's what he's saying. You want to know why you should trust what the Bible says and what I've written as an apostle? Here's why I saw Jesus. I was an eyewitness to his life and everything that you could, uh, you've heard about, I saw it. Now, Peter starts with this odd kind of contrast to tell us this. He says, you know, it's not cleverly devised myths. And you got to say, why is he talking about cleverly devised myths? Well, the false teachers were coming into the church. And they were saying that Peter and the apostles were telling big whoppers. Were telling big lies. And they were saying, hey, all that Peter is saying is, is hooey. See, guys, the false teachers, of the first century church, they were the first conspiracy theorists in the Bible. And what they would say then is not only Peter is telling you a bunch of hooey, but they would say, we're going to tell you the real truth, the real story. You see, the false teachers had a hard time with this idea that God would become a man and dwell among us. They had a hard time with the idea that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would actually live a holy, perfect life, loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving his neighbor's self. Because if you're realistic, nobody gets that right. They had a really hard time, especially with the idea that the great hero of the faith actually went to a cross. He was like Crucified, which was the most shameful thing you could experience in the first century. That's what, that's what the worst criminals of society did. And finally, the false teachers had a really hard time with the fact that uh, the apostles were saying Jesus was alive. He had actually been resurrected from the dead with a new body. And that He was the Lord of all. Even the Lord who had ascended into heaven was ruling over everything. All of this that we consider common, they were saying, man, this is just... uh, this is hooey from Peter. And so the false teachers would say, once these truths came out of the gospel, right, yeah, sure. Uh Uh-huh. Tell us another one, Peter. And I've got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. That's the way they would respond. But Peter is responding to them. And his response is very clear. Dude, we didn't make this up. That's right, Peter used the language of dude in the first century. He's saying, we saw this stuff. Now, stop here. i got to tell you, don't you like the honesty of Scripture? Where it kind of looks at itself, is self-examining and saying, Hey, look, we'll examine ourselves relative to the truth. And you know why Scripture does that throughout? Is willing to even put itself under the microscope? Here's why. Because the Scripture is consistent with its own ethic. What do I mean? In the Ten Commandments, there's a commandment that says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. That's why Scripture tells the truth about men all the way through. It even tells the truth about the heroes of the faith like Moses and David, who did extraordinary things for God, but were very much sinners, broken men, who even did dumb things, sinful things, as they followed the Lord. That's what's beautiful about Scripture. Peter is saying, look, we saw the power of God in Christ, and we're willing to be kind of self-examining about that and be honest about it. We saw how majestic and glorious Jesus was, and this is key, guys. In verses 17 and 18, we got a glimpse of his second coming. Look at verse 17 with me. Look at what he says. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What's he talking about? He's talking about the transfiguration of Jesus. Back in Matthew 17, Luke 9 and Mark 9, Jesus, remember the story, Jesus said to his uh, three closest uh, disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, hey, let's go pray together up on the mountain. So they go up and pray. It was probably late because the text said that the guys started getting sleepy while they were praying. And then, boom. Jesus' face and his clothes change into this dazzling white. And they're wowed by this moment and blown away by it. And as if that wasn't enough, two guys show up on the mountain with them. And it's, they overhear, effectively, their names, Moses and Elijah. These are two guys who had di- died hundreds of years, thousands of years earlier. And there they are. Talking with Jesus about where he's going in his trip to Jerusalem and his death and resurrection. And as if that wasn't enough, Peter's like going, whoa, this is wild stuff. And he starts blabbering, uh, can I make you a tent? Can we do a little pup tent so everybody can kind of hang out and, and uh, roast marshmallows and have s'mores together? Of course, Peter didn't know what he was saying. And then the moment came. As if that wasn't enough in and of itself, which was extraordinary, the Shekinah glory cloud comes in. The cloud that showed up throughout the Old Testament filled the temple when Solomon uh, 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 dedicated the temple. It was the cloud that led God's people, the Israelites, throughout the wilderness, shows up on the mountain. It is the Holy Spirit connecting heaven and earth for a real moment And out of that Shekinah glory cloud comes the voice of God. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Peter is saying, you know what? We were there. And we were there in such a way that we experienced God and got a taste of Christ's real glory. Of what he will look like when he comes back in his second coming. That's what Peter was after. He's bringing up this moment where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come together in one place and saying, One day God will do this finally and fully and transform the whole universe. Peter, in other words, is responding to the skeptics who really doubted if Jesus would ever return. You ever had that doubt? (laughs) I mean, think about it. We've heard for millennia now that Jesus is coming back. And many Christians have lived waiting and hoping and dreaming that Jesus would come back and justice would be done. There would be no more sickness, no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. And yet sometimes we get tired of waiting, don't we? I don't know about you, but I do. And when we get tired of waiting, we often want to bypass the waiting and bypass going to the Lord. And we seek things to ease our pain, to comfort us, control. We seek uh, indulgence. For me, it's eating. Sometimes we go to even darker places. And it's because we have this little bit of despair that says, he's not coming back. This is a bunch of hooey. The false teachers of the first century We're saying these very things. Oh, don't worry about him coming back. That's just, that's a bunch of hogwash. We can tell you how to handle your pain. Here's what you do. Indulge. Live it up. Don't worry about all the stuff of Christianity. Yeah, you'll go to heaven one day. Blah, blah, blah. Just eat, drink, and be merry. That's what they would say. Uh, For the religious types, (laughs) it would go like this. Just be dutiful. Just work harder for God. Don't worry about the end you're heading in. You just need to be dutiful. And the dutiful would be worn out as a result of this. So Peter is saying, guys, let me tell you something. I saw Jesus. In his glory of what he will look like when he comes back one day in the second coming. Now the skeptics would look at Peter and they'd say, yeah, 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 Peter, you saw him, but we didn't. And Peter's response is simple. No, we saw it. And in fact, there's a we there. Did you notice the word we? Here's what's kind of cool about Christianity The testimony about Christ's coming and his second coming, the gospel, comes in a we form. Here's what I mean. Peter was there with James and John. They all three saw it and gave uh, unified testimonies of it that show up in Scripture. Not only that, there are twelve disciples or apostles, as they were later called, who also had a testimony to Christ and all they had seen and told the world in a common story. There are four written gospels in the Bible itself that give four different angles of the accounts, but they all say the very same message. Peter is saying, we, not just me, saw this. Now, here's why that's good for us. You know what Muhammad is different about Muhammad and the Quran versus our scriptures You know what's different about Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon versus our scriptures? It's the we. There are multiple testimonies who write about Jesus. And in a court of law, if you have no witnesses, well, you're in in trouble. If you have one witness, you have some grounds. But if you have multiple witnesses saying this is true, Oh, you've got a really hard and fast case. That's what he's saying about Christ in this text. Folks, we don't don't always understand Scripture and how God waits to come back. But here's what the Scriptures say over and over again, Jesus is coming back. Now, some of us here would say, well, now, there are skeptics among us who would say, well, you know, I want to understand why I have to wait. On the Lord. I want to understand why I have to endure pain and hardship and just dark stuff sometimes. And here's what I would say you will never understand the mind of God purely. He's too big for us, His plan is complicated. But here's the thing that I have learned through the years, and this is what Augustine said. Augustine had these huge questions before he became a Christian, and he tried to understand in order to believe. But here's what Christianity is about. You believe in order to understand. You trust that there's a God who actually loves you and is good and will care for you in any circumstance. That's the God that Peter is saying we need to trust. Peter has given us something here that is extraordinary. The eyewitness account. But that's not all. There's more to than eyewitness accounts on why we should trust the word of God. Look at verse 19 and what it says in our text. It says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star, that is Christ himself, rises in your hearts. Peter says we have something more sure to base our faith on. So, okay, eyewitness accounts aren't enough for you. Okay, how about the prophetic word of the Old Testament? The promises of Scripture that were fulfilled in detail in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. In fact, the Old Testament is chock full of prophecies, even indirect prophecies, that point to Christ coming and establishing His kingdom here on earth. Genesis 3.15 says Jesus the Christ, the champion of God, born of a woman, would crush the head of a serpent while the serpent would crush his heel. Christ, of course, fulfilled that cross. Isaiah 9 says unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, which is an illusion that is clearly fulfilled in Christ's incarnation as a Son of God. Then there is the shockingly clear chapter about Christ's suffering on the cross, Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. We are forgiven. Peter says in our text, pay attention. Pay attention to this. If Christ clearly fulfilled so many of these prophecies, then there must be something dare I say, everything about what God says in His Word to weave history together in such a way that over a long period of time He fulfills those prophecies. In other words, if God promises something to you, like Jesus is coming back one day, He is reliable, and as the Lord of all, the sovereign over the universe, over everything that happens He is able to pull it off. Why does this matter? Why does this matter to us today? Well, when you and I are under pressure and we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting on God, and we're tempted to leave the path and follow our own way because Jesus' path seems just too hard and painful, that's the time When Jesus calls us to believe the promise of God. To go to the word of God because the word is a lamp unto our feet. The word is a light unto our path. When the road seems really dark, you and I need to hear from God speaking through the spirit in his word. Read the word. It is the LED flashlight of your life. Hear the word, dwell on the word, memorize the word. It will keep you on the narrow road because it'll keep you focused on God, not your circumstance. So, we are the uh, We have eyewitness accounts in Scripture about Christ, and and God has given us promises in His Scripture. To keep us following Christ and living in holiness? So now let's ask an important question here in our text. Let's ask this. What is Peter doing in these verses? What's he trying to accomplish? I mean, why is he making this case already with two major points? Well, simply put, he is affirming the veracity, the believability of Scripture As the final authority of all truth and all living. You see, the first century Christians lived in a pluralistic world with all kinds of truth claims. Does that sound familiar to you? Here's what truth claims are like God is like this. No, no, God is like this. No, Jesus is like this. No, Jesus is like that. And there are all kinds of claims going on. This is how you live. No, this is how you live. This is what true sexuality and love is. No, no, no. This is what true. And the result is the believers were bewildered by all these competing views that were swimming in the culture that they were in. And what would happen is the false teachers would come in and get in in the crease there of their questions and struggles And they would bring them a load of hot tub religion. Don't worry, you'll feel better. Of course, it was a don't worry, you'll feel better without Christ being a part of that. In point of fact, what the false teachers were doing was saying, hey, look, just don't kick against the goads of culture. Just do what they say and it won't be as hard. And we can make an impact that way. They were saying good is bad and bad is good. That's what the false teachers were doing. Now, the Christians would hear this from the false teachers. You know what they would say to them? They would say, well, Peter and the apostles said this. And you know what the false teachers would say? Says who? Who are Peter and who are the apostles? So? So? This is a key issue for us as Christians. And the issue is this. It's authority. Where do you get the authority to say something is true? When somebody says this is true, what is the authority behind that truth claim? Well, let's ask. What are common authorities in our time? Well, one authority is self. What do I think, I believe, I feel? The second authority is experience. What have I experienced in life? And the third, um, third authority that I would highlight is tradition or culture. That is, what have we practiced, encountered in our life and think is true? And here's what's interesting. These three authorities, all of them base themselves somewhat on people, on what is true. But the problem with that is this. What happens when what I say is true is different from what you say is true? Who's right? Is it you who is right? Or is it you who is right? Or is there a higher authority that we appeal to? The problem with self, an authority of truth is you end up getting in a stalemate and whoever has the most winsomeness, the most power, ends up winning the war. What about experience? Well, here's experience. I have a religious experience or I think this is what true spirituality is. And you're going to hear more of this in American culture in the years to come. How do you know that's true? When I say this is what spirituality is, what are you going to appeal to? What happens if a group of people in a tradition or a culture say, we think this is what's true. And another group says, no, we think this is what's true. What happens when they butt heads as groups. You know what they call that. In politics right? It's called war. With guns and people dying. Now there's a greater truth for us as Christians. That's what Peter's saying. But there is one authority we all got to deal with in American culture today. Even our society. It is the authority of reason. What do I think? What do I rationalize in my head? Now, to be sure, we're supposed to use our brains, and we try to use our brains a lot in this church. But what happens if somebody says, I think this, and another person says, I think that? Who's right? Who determines who's right? What happens when you're stuck in a stalemate? Well, then... Somebody will bring up, well, in a rational world, we always have science. We can come up with hypotheses. And we can trust in empirical evidence that we measure with different events and patterns we see in people, events, people, uh, or even nature itself. Now, science is a beautiful thing. I'm an applied scientist uh, in my training. I'm an engineer by trade. And yet, you got to know something about science. Science has paradigm shifts all the time. That's another way to say science changes its mind all the time. Now, I want to be clear. All of these authorities on some level have a place and can be good. Even have an intuitive sense of self can be good. Having a sense of experience that your experience can uh, really teach you some things is true. Um, Reason, even tradition and culture offer good things to us. But what happens when you get down right to the point? Peter's saying there is one final authority for every Christian, and it is Scripture. The Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. When I was a kid, this is before I was a Christian. I was like 12 years old. I was with a friend at his house one night. I think we spent the night we were hanging out. And we were talking about some kind of... um, some kind of moral issue, I recall, and he brought up, "Well, the Bible says," and I said, "Bible, Bible is just another good book. You are going to get that more and more in this culture. That's even happening in some corners of our church, of the not the PCA, but other parts of the church. Bible, why are you taking that seriously? Here is where we." are confronted with the problem of says who? Says who? What do we do when the History Channel makes claims that the church is holding out and keeping other books of the Bible from you? Without ever letting you know that those books were written centuries after the apostles wrote what they did and the people who wrote for the apostles wrote what they did. You should ask, says who? When Bart Ehrman at UNC Chapel Hill Tells kids and writes books that say the Bible and Christianity is a giant conspiracy theory. You can ask, says who? You see what Peter is doing? This is great. He's affirming the authority of scripture and giving us the opportunity to turn the question right back around and say, says who? Says you? So you're the final authority. Oh, okay. You really want all that on your shoulders? What's true whether you're here or not says who? And when they ask you what you base your claims on Christ, about Christ on, you and I can say with authority, God says. God says, in fact, look at verse 20 with me. Knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The final reason that we trust the Word of God is God has spoken. He has inspired the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3:16. Uh, the, uh, the Word of God is inspired, is God breathed, to use the language of that text. There are eyewitness accounts. There are even promises in the Old Testament and the New that Jesus will return. But God has spoken those Himself through men in their time and place. Now let me be clear. They weren't automatons where the Holy Spirit took over Moses or David or all the other writers like Paul or Peter himself, and they just wrote, you know, like like automaton, duh, like a robot. No, no, no that. They wrote in their time and place with authority and inspiration. And you know how I know that? The Bible throughout says, God said, God said, God said, God said. God said. Jesus himself affirmed the Bible. And affirmed where God said, Jesus used the Old Testament and affirmed its authority in life. God carried men along through the power of the Spirit so that they were inspired to write the words of God for us. So, men did not make this stuff up like UFOs. God recorded His story and particularly the history of Jesus Christ in Scripture. The Bible is inspired in its promises and in its eyewitness accounts. So, I've tried to give a case now of why we should believe the Scriptures. And I have to stop because we need to go to the Lord's table. But here's the thing I would tell you. Scripture is reliable because God has ensured it would be. And in a future time, we'll cover the rest of this stuff But all things considered, here's what you need to consider. God has spoken so that you and I can go to the culture and say, says who? And then you can move to, thus saith the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good gifts you've given us in this word. I pray, Lord, you'd open our hearts to how we might rely on your word. Thank you that you have spoken loudly through it and that we can have hope that, Jesus, you're going to come back. And whatever struggles we wrestle with in life, your word speaks. We just must seek you out. Give us the courage to do so through the word. Give us the courage to know you through the word. And give us the courage to believe that this word is worth listening to because you have spoken and you have spoken through an inspired word. Thank you for loving us deeply, Lord, and speaking to us in Christ's name. Amen.